Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact, taken from the subreddit HFY. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment, and subscribe, like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. I just want to give a quick thanks to the Tier 5 channel members and patrons. Bob the Dragon, Data Magnet, Sergeant Puma, Cat Crab Lobster, and Duck Machine. Thank you very much for the support. It is much appreciated. Chapter 351 90 Days After Case Omaha Unified Council Territory Talmu Ogu'u had been a member of the Unified Executive Council for nearly 300 years, but through all the thrice-damned Mantid had shown up. He had done nothing more than lounge about in luxury while having his sycophant show up to the council meetings. Now, through no fault of his own, barring the fact that he'd voted for biological strikes to be used, he was relegated to a backwater system that was part of an ancient plan to keep the great herd intact, should any enemy actually threaten it. Talmu Ugu'u knew that it was only a matter of time before the way to gentle the lemurs was found. After all, time was on the Lanaklan people's side. That wasn't in his thoughts, as he spit out his chewed-up wad of Stimcut before jamming another wad into his mouth and activating the secure hypercom link. One by one, the other Most Highs who had moved out to take control of the worlds appeared. All but one chair was full. The missing chair was supposed to be filled with Angto Omao, but from what the collected investigations had discovered, Angto Omao's personal spacecraft had been misidentified by a security system around the luxury world that he'd fled to and been destroyed because the ship's weight did not match records. All of the present Lanaklan nodded to one another through the flickering and transparent holograms. What is this about? The great grand superior exalted executor most high of most highs for Ukmi'i asked, his tendrils curled with agitation. The others demanded to know the same thing. Gu'akata'ad, senior superior grand most high of exalted most highs of the grand secret executive council, leaned forward. We have word from the attack on terror. That made the arguing stop. The attack had been launched over a year ago in complete secrecy. They all leaned forward, eager to hear the news of the pterosaurs gone. Banner cracked into oblivion. The insane lemurs would be lamenting their decision to go to war with the might of the great herd. Tal snorted to himself. Lamenting lemurs, he thought, and snorted again. It was amusing in a sensible way. It appears that our attacks were successful on the Confederate Priory worlds, Gu'utka'ad said. Talugumu noticed that the other, more senior Lanaklan seemed grave, hardly the attitude of a victorious being. Our fleets were completely lost, however, Gu'utka'ad stated. He made a motion, and in the middle of the table an image appeared. As you can see, the special area where the home systems once were is now each occupied by multiple singularities in a mathematical orbit. There was silence. The loss of the great fleets, a full third of their military forces, was a staggering blow when the Terran Confederate fleets were still gobbling up star systems like greedy cults in a candy shop. All of the systems? Fukmi asked. Yes, all of the systems. The observation vessels saw the fleet drop out of superluminal drive and begin to attack the call systems of the Confederacy. Gut Ag said. Another image appeared, 
annotated with military icons and symbols showing the might of the great fleets entering the systems. Combat began, icons winking out and being surrounded by the bright purple of severe damage. Suddenly, one by one, each system suddenly vanished. Additional reinforcement fleets, unwarned, dropped into where the core system should have been and were torn apart by the gravitational forces of the singularities. Rapid report ships made haste to the hypercom range and transmitted the data, showing that these fleets, as well as the Confederate core systems, are all destroyed, Gutgaard said. That'll prevent the system Confederate forces from receiving reinforcements at least, Dunbar said, nodding slowly. It should have the severe moral effect upon the Terrans and their allies. Taugumau cleared his throat, and every Atlantic land looked at him. It may not have the effect that any of you think, he stated. Explain, Dunbar snapped. I have been given able to ruse the Terran history. While the eliminate the grazing ground attack method will surely work upon the majority of their allies, the Terrans may not be as affected by the attack as any of you believe, Taumagu said. He quickly explained that the Terrans had been attacked repeatedly, and in at least one case lost their home system to an enemy attack, including a mantid glassing. There was silence for a long moment. And how did the Terrans react each time their call system was being destroyed? Gokdaad asked. It was not destroyed, merely damaged. Dunbar snapped. Silence! Gokdaad retorted. The other Lanaklan tendrils curled in anger, but he closed his mouth. With utmost savagery, while their government may have collapsed, it led to a period of intense militarization with a high weapon technology development curve as well as a total commitment of industry, manpower, and economic forces towards military development and deployment, Taumaku stated. There was a long moment of silence. They've taken by military force over half the Unified Council territory and virtually all of the Neo-Sapien worlds, Tumba'as said slowly. Taumaku noted that the other clan seemed to have suddenly lost a lot of his bluster. It is well known that they arm their train the Neo-Sapiens to defend themselves, and at least three Neo-Sapien races have begun to field their own forces. Although those forces are largely deployed against the precursor autonomous war machine combat areas. They have already slowed their operational tempo. Our ships do us stated. Little more than targets that the Confederates can destroy at their leisure without worrying about even scratching their hulls by return fire. Fukmei sneered. Do not bother trying to deny it. We are all privy to the unredacted battlefield footage and action recordings. Anything less than an anti-vehicle weaponry won't even slow down an unarmored Terran. Their ships have longer range, are faster, are more heavily armored and shielded than even our strongest ships. Fukmei spit a cud off to the side and pulled out a wrapped cud. Unless you have some kind of new technology hidden inside your rectal cavity that you plan to pull out and wave around, you can create the largest armada you want, and they'll be not good. And what do you suggest? Dumbass snapped back. If I knew that, I would have suggested it. We cannot sue for peace. I doubt the Confederacy would consider anything less than total and abject surrender, disarmament, and occupation, Fokme said. 
He angrily jammed in a wad of cut and started chewing. The war is virtually lost. All continuing to prosecute the war will do is kill more of our people. There was silence for a long time, the elder statesman's words hanging in the air. Surely the Confederates are overextended. Their supply lines must be at critical levels. They surely have no reinforcements, and they can expect no more war materials from their core systems being knocked out. Fukumi said quietly, It won't matter, Tulmugu said, breaking the silence. Their mastery of cloning assures the constant supply of fresh combat-trained and capable troops. Their ability to xenoform planets outstrips the gatherer ability to harvest a biosystem. Their automated factory systems and digital intelligences mean that within only a few planetary revolutions that they have factories turning out more materials. With the morale hardened by the loss of the origin systems, Gut-Ut-Ag said. A chill descended on the room. In each room, and virtually gathered Lanaglan shivered. The precursor autonomous war machines are back in force, attacking both the Terran forces and the Neo-Sapien worlds. A large thrust is driving for the core worlds and is poised to attack some of the oldest worlds of the Unified Council. Ad said. He paused for a moment, bringing up a map. The entire edge of the long dark glimmered red, with tentacles moving towards the core systems. They intend on finishing what they started a hundred million years ago. He wiped the map away and looked at everyone. Our forces cannot stop them, even if we had not just lost over a third of our forces, eliminating the Confederate home systems. They would brush us aside as easily as the Terrans gallop over our forces and trample them beneath their wall steel boots. Except they are not attacking us, Most High, Fukumi said. They are attacking the Terrans, who are in possession of those worlds, which is the only reason they are not present at this meeting. Ruutuo said, breaking his silence. The Terrans are able to stop them in most cases, slow them down when they cannot stop them. So what do we do? No Otra Odo-O asked the question on everyone's mind. They cannot unconditionally surrender to the Terrans. Who knows what horrors they will visit upon us in our vengeance? And we cannot ensure some ultra-loyalist does not commit another biowarfare attack upon them, in which case they would slaughter us all until we only inhabited a single world, Gutuo said, his tendrils hanging limp in despair. I fear that we have set the great herd upon a galloping charge of a cliff. We are unrelentingly fighting to survive against the very force that is the only one that can censure our survival against the ancient machines, Notra Odo said. The unnamed ones laugh at us. What then can we hope to do to ensure the survival of our people? Gutuag asked. Nobody had any answers. Dear Almva, revered mother, I penned this letter with my heart full of joy, yet heavy with despair. The Terran Confederacy has determined that our people are no longer combatants, and that our people are no longer what they call belligerents, so we will soon be processed from the prisoner of war to parodie status. While this means that we are not allowed to contribute to any military effort or fight against the Confederacy, I feel that the terms are more than acceptable. I've had a taste of combat. It lingers on my tongue still. A bitter, sharp taste of ashes and old blood. The taste that haunts my dreams at times. But I have the tools I need to spit the taste out. I desire no more heroics, no more glory, 
and would be perfectly happy to never leave whatever home I eventually end up residing on. Revered Mother, so much has happened, so much has changed. I fear, Mother, that there will be no place for me there, that perhaps I should stay here, at the edge of this lagoon, fishing on the dock, till the stars burn out and the skies go dark. I am not sure if I should return home, revered Mother. The world is being made anew by the Elven Queens and with the might of Terrasol. It is being made into a fresh, clean thing full of promise and hope. I no longer feel clean, Mother. I weep for your embrace, to tell me that I'm being foolish, that I will always be a loyal and faithful child. But I feel dirty, unclean. Does our world need one such as me in its shores again? I love you, Mother, and miss you truly. Respect and honor, Delvar, your male child. Dear Alnvar Revere Mother, I hope my previous letter did not alarm you. I had what my doctor called a depressive episode that is apparently quite common at this stage of emotional and mental healing that I've currently achieved. The doctor spoke to me the day after I mailed my letter, talked me through what I was feeling. I had not realized that part of me feels safer in my house by the lagoon. With the guns of the Confederacy guarding me, it is strange, revered mother, that I feel so safe surrounded by the guns of those who defeated me in combat. But I do. Even the sight of a Trianidad doctor does not cause my fear in my heart. They are a funny people, revered mother. You would like them. They know many jokes, enjoy laughing, and are often silly. Did you know that one of the most prestigious jobs that Trianidad can obtain is a moo-moo milker? They have animals called moo-moos that are a bovine mammal that produce lactation. The Trianidad milk them for their lactation, which they use in ice cream. Ice cream is very important to their society. I tried some. It's quite delicious. A Trianidad guard showed me how to make my own ice cream with two simple metal containers. Ice, sea salt, and a few ingredients. When I get home, I'll teach you to make it too. I think my cousins will like it. My pen pal sent me another letter recently. She included a small piece of wood, taking her from the glass sailing vessel. I feel much in common with her, as you both are sailors. When she grows up, she wants to be a glass skiff racer, which sounds quite exciting. Last week, several female in car joined our little camp. They are very shy, much more shy than I remember females being. They are guarded at all times by Regillian soldiers. Huge, muscular, imposing female Syrians. I talked to one the day I wrote to you. The Rigelian, a military policeman, sat between us, holding her hand. She was quite shy. Her name is Umpner, from the Red Reeds Island, and she has taken from her home nearly ten years ago. I didn't learn much more because she began to cry and asked me to leave while the Rigelian comforted her. Today I saw her and many other females. Some of them were doing what the Rigelians call a powerlifting, which is apparently repeatedly lifting great weights in certain methods to improve their strength. They were also doing something called self-defense courses, which, strangely enough, did not include weapons. It was physical combat drills. I asked my therapist about it and was told it involves regaining personal autonomy and anger management. 
After therapy, I worked on my boat. It does not have many motor, and a simple windcraft with solar panel to work the radio and transponder. Last week, I rode out to a storm on it with Trevor and Clevar, but the main mast was slightly damaged, and we've been working on it. We could use a nanoforge or the ants to make a new one, but have chosen to craft by hand from wood that we cut ourselves. And including pictures of all of us working on the boat, which we named the Whisper of the Waves. Tell everyone that I'm doing better, and I'm sorry if my last letter alarmed you. Respect and honor, Dalvar, your male child. Dranidad Hypolds. I'm thinking about unlocking the bag. We've got it under control here. Our defenses are rebuilt. We've got ships to replace the few losses we had. Nothing follows. Manted Freewilds. Same here. Nothing follows. Rygelian Syrian Combat. You should. It's nice out here. Nothing follows. Biological Artificial Sentient Systems. Our vote to open the bag passed with 92% mandate. Nothing follows. Digital Artificial Sentient Systems. Same here. Well... We had an 84% mandate. Some smartass started a political group that gained 8% of the votes for This bag is love, and the bag is life. Nothing follows. Tratted out high volts. Snark. Now is what you get. Nothing follows. Tinvara gripping hands. Why? Nothing follows. Manted free worlds. Because they can. Okay. Here's some honesty. If any of the Terrasol children ever vote 100% on something... If you ever see someone claiming to be one of Terrasol's children say that a 100% vote passed, you're more than likely dealing with an imposter. Nothing follows. Trinidad High Volts. True facts. Nothing follows. Rygalian Serene Compact. Without a doubt, I've seen two Terrans get into a fistfight over what color the sky was that day. They can see a wider spectrum of the blue shift than we can. They have like a quadrillion different shades of blue. Nothing follows. Manted Highworlds. Quadrazillion isn't a word. Nothing follows. Rygelians are in compact. Nice job, sis. Now there's half a dozen humans first fighting over whether it is or is not a real word. Nothing follows. Terrasol. You know I can hear you all, right? Falcon Forgeworlds. Can all of you, um, 100% of you? Nothing follows. Terrasol. Oh, look, we've got a comedian. Trinidad Highfolds. You'll do fine, kid. Okay, I'm doing it. Nothing follows. Trinidad Highfolds have left stealth chat, lost the connection to client. Trinidad Highfolds have joined the chat. Trinidad Highfolds. Okay, can everyone hear me? Nothing follows. Talcum Forgeworlds. No. Nothing follows. Trinidad Highfolds. Damn it! What do we do wrong? Nothing follows. Trinidad Highvolts has left the chat, lost connection to client. Trinidad Highvolts has joined the chat. Trinidad Highvolts, oh, hardy ha ha. Nothing follows. Pubian Federation, good one, kid. Nothing follows. Manted Free Worlds has left the chat. BASS has left the chat. DASS has left the chat. Clone has left the chat. Manted has joined the chat. BASS has joined the chat. DASS has joined the chat. Clone has joined the chat. Huh. This is nice. It feels roomy. Nothing follows. Ackletack Free Flight. Welcome back. Nothing follows. 
Digital artificial sentient systems. Thanks. Nothing follows. Biological artificial sentient systems. Thanks. Nothing follows. Mantid Peebles. Oh, this is nice. Nothing follows. Talcan Fortrules. Phew. I was worried there for a bit. Nothing follows. Mantid Peebles. About what? Nothing follows. Pterosaur. I know. Mantid Peebles. How? Do you know? Nothing follows. Pterosaur. Because the bear controls aren't responding. We're stuck. And that's not all. Talcan Fortrules. Oh no. What else? Nothing follows. Hessler system. Warning! I be out of range. Hessler system. Warning! Time date stamp error. Hessler system. The way they came at you is by making you do it over and over again. Each ba- Oak themselves. By a psychic energy so others can help you, but you should- Just, uh, though, you read the signal. Terrasol. Terrasol! We read you, sir! Warning to all Gestalt entities. Temporal warfare in Hessler system. This is a war- Hing follows- Terrasol. Ace Omaha is oh, um, on Morris Denton. Morris event Denton. Mo- Morning. Message IP out of range. Morning. Message time date stamp error. Tranodide Hypels. You just had to ask. Nothing follows. End of chapter. Chapter 352. The day was warm, with warm breezes coming in from the coast. The sky was smooth and comfortable amber, the three moons silently moving across the sky. The bluish grass was high on the tallest of the dozen young female humans walking on top of the hill, the youngest only visible by the top of her head appearing and disappearing in the grass. The tallest got to the top of the hill and made a motion. The other girls vanished into the grass. She lifted up a pair of macro binoculars, scanning below her. The spaceships were all damaged, some were little more than carbonized wreckage. Others had only been slightly damaged by being broken in half, all their wings snapped off, all one end smashed into junk. The blastocrete tarmac was packed and pitted with craters. The terminal windows were all shattered. The control towers had collapsed and burned. The ground cars and hover cars were scattered around, all of them damaged to one degree or another. She knelt down so that she was barely visible, scanning the spaceport. The city was heavily damaged. Burned ground cars, crashed hover vehicles, all lit the streets, the parking lots, and smashed into buildings. Blast sheets stirred around the wind. Windows were broken open. Some buildings had burned and most of the skyscrapers had collapsed. The decayed remains of the people and invaders were scattered around. She focused the macro binoculars on one body, unsure if it was a shadow or a trick of the light. It was a man in business apparel, missing both legs. As the girl, and she was a young teenage girl, watched the figure lift itself up and gave a wordless cry of hunger that the girl couldn't hear. The sight of his face was charred from the plasma hit, his teeth crooked, his skin yellowish, blackish fluid leaked from his nose and mouth. The man collapsed back down on the ground, face first, going still. Deaders, the girl said softly. Stupid deaders, the girl said. 
She was dressed in a rough homespun pants, a rough shirt, and wearing two different boots. Her hair was held back by the bandana from her forehead and had woven into the braid of her back. How many? A third girl asked. She had on pants, a vest, a backpack, a hat, boots, and a belt pack pulled around to the front. As she spoke, she undid the pressure seal on the belt pack and opened the back. Not sure. I only see one right now, the tallest girl said. Wait, I see another, stuck under the car. Looks like most of them didn't survive the winter. The third girl opened the pack far enough for several small doll-like figures to emerge, wings on their back buzzing. They circled her as she sealed the pack again. See more debtors than people lately, the bandana girl said. She looked over at the girl, surrounded by a dozen or so little dolls. How's their charge? Okay, the girl said. I'll send them out to scout the starport. Make sure that they stay away from the lankies and people. We don't have many left, the oldest girl said. The one with the pat nodded and as the smallest walked up. She had on boots with flash sheets crumpled up and stuffed inside. People are all gone, just us and deaders, the young girl said, pulling her thumb out of her mouth. She went back to sucking her thumb, holding onto a leash with her other hand. Think there's working anti-hive down there? Another girl asked. She was holding a great herd plasma pistol in one hand, and the side open with wires sticking out. Think so. Lots of custom template shops. Looks like some vehicle repair shops. Plus the starships. The tall girl said. We might be able to find supplies. Well, if it goes sideways, we got Mr. BP. Another girl said, jerking a thumb towards the girl who was sucking her thumb and staring at the grass around her. The thumbsucker nodded. All right, let's go. Keep your eyes open. We don't want to get pushed against the wall like we did in Kumba Bay. The tall one said. She stood up, shading her eyes and squinting. At least the city has power. For now, one of the girls grunted, smacking her hands together to knock off the dirt. She stood up, wincing, and limped after the leader. The girls got up and started down the hill, angling towards the spaceport. Just another day, the tallest one said. In paradise, the others answered back. The girls spent the day skirting the spaceport, looking down the streets and broken maglev tracks for any sign of a threat. When dark came, they backed off, climbing inside a cargo truck and shutting the doors. The one with the pack gave a sharp whistle and let the little winged fairies return to the back. All of them come back, the eldest asked. The girl nodded. She tapped the data slate, hanging from the thong on her belt. It'll take a while to see what they found. The slate's slow. The eldest girl nodded. The one with the limp sat down, leaning against the crate marked Super String Compressor Buffer Spring Shock Clamps, and reached into her pocket. She pulled out a small case with the words Warm Aura Holistic Medical Center on it. She popped it open, revealing that it was half full of quick pokes and wrenches. She dug one out, put it in her mouth, and pulled and out another. Two tonight? The eldest asked. The one with the limp nodded, snapping the case closed and putting it back in her pocket. She stripped the caps off each, injecting them into the crook of her elbow, and then leaned back, sighing. You need to eat, Mimi, the eldest said. Leave me alone, Didi. My leg hurts, the girl, Mimi, said, closing her eyes. I got shot, remember? You can eat, or I'll beat you up. Didi said, 
crossing her arms, or I'll stomp on your leg again. Mimi sighed and looked over to where the thumbsucker was kneading. The small, nutri-porch held tight between her knees. She was pouring water into it. I'm tired of forge food, she said. She shuddered and her pupils dilated. No, oh, that's the stuff. She gave a long sigh, her eyelids heavy. At least Nini isn't peeing in it so that we can eat. We were hungry, the thumbsucker snapped, her eyes hard. You weren't helping, just getting high all the time. I got shot, the girl said softly, her head lolling to the side. Oh, that's better. She's not going to eat, the one with the bandana said, wrinkling her nose. Let her sleep, Didi said, looking at the one with the pack. Do the night fairy still work, Cindy? The girl with the pack shook her head. No, they're still tired. I think the battery is almost dead. Didi sighed. All right, Nene, put Mr. Beepy on watch. We'll eat and get some rest. Nini pulled her thumb out of her mouth and nodded, climbing out the back of the cargo lifter. The little Nutri-Forge put out small breakfasts, its internal clock off. The girls ate and then all huddled up, sharing two tattered emergency blankets. They all curled up together in one of the middle-sized ones staying awake and went to sleep. One by one, they woke up each other and stood guard. When the morning came, they gathered around the small duty forge, attaching a new battery with a faded and scrapped case to it. The holographic interface seemed warm and tired as they each ordered up something for breakfast from the lunch menu, since the nanoforge's clock was out of sync with the actual time. Once they had eaten, they peeked outside the truck and then quickly moved from the truck to the grass and vegetation that had sprung up around the ruined suburb that had grown up around the starport. The buildings were flattened, overgrown by grass and shrubs in the time since the end had come. The littlest girl took her thumb out of her mouth and gave a sharp whistle, shaking her leash. Her pet ran up, frolicking in the morning sun, and waited until she put the leash on. It obediently followed her into the grass, happy to see her again. The solar collectors on the side were dusty, and she took them time to wipe them off. The sun was high in the sky when the oldest two ran out of the grass, running up to the fence. The younger of the two pulled a hand-held plasma cutter out of her pocket, the case marked with the symbol of the great herd, and used it to slice open through the chain-link fence. They ran back and hid in the grass. After a period of time, they slowly moved out of the grass, in a cluster where they kept bumping into each other and staggering. It was a strange way to move, as if the joints weren't quite put together right. The oldest held open the chain-link fence while the others moved through. Mr. Beebe and the last and oldest one, Didi, reached out and scratched him lightly before waving him through. Mr. Beebe beeped happily and hurried to catch up to the youngest girl, who held the retractable leash in the hand that wasn't attached to her mouth. They moved in a weird clustered group, staring to make the err and roar noises at odd times, until they reached one of the starships that the engines had been smashed and burned. The one with the fairies. Cindy opened her back, and the fairies swirled around for a moment before swooping into the wreck. They're getting tired, Diddy, Cindy said softly. I'm just glad they lasted as long as they have, Diddy said. We're lucky we found the hide-and-seeking bells in that shop. Cindy nodded. They all huddled up 
watching until the fairies came back. Sandy lifted up the data slate, watching it slowly go through the data. The little robots were designed to look for children, map rooms, play games, and find things. They also rarely lasted longer than a few months. No power, Sandy said softly. I don't want to go into that dark ship, one of the girls said quietly. We aren't gonna, Dee said. Let's move on. Keep an eye out for any deaders waking up. The group moved from ship to ship, the very searching inside each time. On the sixth check, Cindy looked up. This one has power. All right, Cindy will give everyone a map. We'll split up into groups of two. Nini, you stay here with Mr. Beepy, she said. Mr. Beepy barked happily. The girls moved into the starship, which looked scorched, dented, and battered. Daddy was trying to open the door marked Ganny when she heard it. The low, curious moan of a deader that had seen movement or heard the sound that it hadn't heard before. Amy put one finger to her lumps, her eyes hidden in her mirror shades, holding a Confederate Army Magak pistol. Her wrists were braced with medical braces that were drawn on with colored markers. The deader, a crewman in a jumpsuit, staggered around the corner. Amy lowered the pistol, leveling it with the deader's chest, and checked her ammo counter. Six. She stuck her tongue out and held it between her teeth as she pressed the firing stud. Goofwack! The entire upper half of the deader exploded into a mist, the legs standing up for a moment before folding up and landing on the floor. The two girls listened closely for any other movement as Amy waved the pistol around, letting the overheating mag coils cool. The heat shroud around the pistol's barrel smoked, thick black smoke, for a few moments. Should be okay, Dee Dee said. She checked her own pistol, a lanky stun gun she'd hotwired. It had half the charge and she had one more charge brick in her pocket. She opened the door slowly, looked in. There were only tables and benches and chairs, all scattered around. The lights popped and hissed, flashing on and off. Look, a food forge, Amy said. I see it. Watch my butt, Dee Dee said. She moved into the room, keeping inside, watching the corners, watching any openings. She reached the food forge and pressed a thumb against the menu. The food forge pinged and the menu popped up. Mass tanks are at 90%, Dee Dee said. Sagging, slightly relief. We can eat something besides snacks. She turned and looked around. Let's find the others. We'll sweep the ship, turn on the power, and barricade the airlock. Tomorrow, we'll search the concourse. Abby nodded, looking around. Her mirror shades let her see as if it was daytime. A half hour later found them in the airlock. Diddy, with a quick count, and sighed. Where's Mimi? she asked. She looked at Howney. You were with her... She said she was going to stay on the bridge. It has power, Howney said. The lights buzzed and flickered. She's probably stoned, one of the other girls said. Go out and tell Nini that we're going to stay in here tonight, and Mr. Beepy can come in. We'll plug him in and get his charge back up, Diddy said. She oriented herself, checking the map the fairies had made that she stored in her data link. She moved carefully, keeping an eye on the doors and other corridors. The ship had been searched, but it wouldn't be the first time a debtor had come shambling out of the darkness and killed someone, even after the area had been searched. Mimi was slumped in the captain's chair, her legs straight out. The med pack had fallen off the arm of the chair and spiraling stickers onto the floor. 
Mimi was breathing slow and steady, her face pale, dark circles under her eyes. There were three stickers in her lap, empty, and a crook in her elbow was slightly swollen. Diddy put her hand on her shooter, wrapping her long fingers around chipped nails around the butt as she stared at Mimi. Her face hardened and she started to draw the pistol from the holster. Is she stunned again? When he asked from the hatchway. Diddy let go of her pistol and turned around, shaking her head. Blasted. She's gonna overdose, Diddy, Winnie said. We'll make up and she'll take a bite out of someone's butt. And the eleven-old looked at Diddy, her face serious. You know it. I know it. Everyone knows it. Mimi shifted on her chair slowly and passed gas, not opening her eyes. At least Dee Dee hoped the other girl had just farted. A few times in the last month she'd actually fudged her panties and had been stoned enough just to sit in them. We'll worry about her when it happens, Dee Dee said. She started walking out, Winnie following her. You could have shot her, I wouldn't have said anything, Winnie said softly. The thought didn't horrify Dee Dee like it would have a year ago. Never mind, let's get some rest. I want to finish searching the ships by lunch tomorrow. Diddy walked out of the destroyed freighter. The mass tanks were almost full, in contrast to the mass tanks on the tramp steamer that they were hiding in. The tanks on their home were still attached to the hoses that they'd been using to refill. The other end of the hoses melted and torn away from where they'd been attached to the refueling truck that had been destroyed. Nini was playing with Mr. Beepy, throwing a large stick that the robot ran over and picked up and trotted back with. Paulie moved over next to Diddy. You know, the house might still be spaceworthy, she said. She was twisting the mag coils at the end of her pistol's barrel, a habit that she'd gotten into months ago. I know, Diddy said. She shaded her eyes, watching Ninny throw the stick again. Damn it! What? Polly asked, looking up. She's watching out. See, she saw us. I told Mimi to stay with her, Diddy said, and sighed. Come on, wasn't that hard of a job? Ninny and Mimi don't like each other. Ori reminded Diddy unnecessarily. I don't care. I told them to stay together, Diddy said. She hurried across the street. A buzzing sound started, getting closer. All of the girls ran for cover, hiding, crouching down and looking up at the sky. A drone, the sound baffling long go go ruined, wobbled in the air. The buzzing noise quite and leveled it out. Diddy lifted up her macro binoculars, staring at the drone. Grown-ups... Paulie asked, fiddling with the mag coils on a pistol. No, lanky, Diddy said. The drone shimmered and the camo system came back on. I thought all the lankies were dead, Paulie said. She shifted up a pistol, staring at where the drone had been. I see it. Take it out. Hopefully they haven't seen much, Diddy said. She sighed. I don't want to leave. I want off this planet, Paulie said. She exhaled, relaxed, and tapped the trigger. The plasma pistol shrieked and the magnetic stabilization coils sparked and screamed. The plasma bolt hit the drone, exploding in a blaze of white and yellow. Pieces of drone fell from the sky as Paulie blew on the smoking coils. Then I know we're here now, Diddy said. She started walking to where Ninny was sitting next to Mr. Beepy, petting the long nose. She stopped next to Ninny, who looked up, sucking her thumb. How's Mr. Beepy? Diddy asked, crouching down. Tired, Ninny said, putting her thumb out of her mouth. He feels better now that we played. We might have some lankies here soon, Diddy said. 
She reached out and brushed Nenny's hair away from the girl's stator leg. The case was missing, exposing the electronics. How about my Nenny? How is she? Diddy asked. Eddie smiled. I'm okay. I want to leave. I know, sweetie. I want to leave too, Diddy said. When we leave, can I have a new mommy and daddy? Nenny asked, her blue eyes wide. Diddy swallowed at the sight that the one girl's cyber eyes were cracked. Yes, Nenny. When we're safe, I'll make sure you get a new mommy and a daddy. Diddy promised, part of her feeling like it was a lie. Then we're never going to get off this planet. Diddy leaned down and kissed Nenny's head. If the lankies come, can you and Mr. Beepy handle it? Nenny nodded, sticking her thumb back in her mouth. Unseen by either girl, up in the tail of the trampola, a light blinked steadily. The Lanarktland APC had seen better days. The blast steel was scrapped, discolored, battered, and poorly patched. The graviton pods were howling, two of them blowing sparks everywhere. It crashed through the fence, heading straight for the tramp hauler. One side was open, showing half a dozen Lanarktland troops in mismatched armor, all carrying plasma rifles. It had just passed the collapsed control tower when the driver saw it out of the corner of his eye. It was a four-legged robot, crouched down, a robotic dog head wired sloppily to the frame. It had a fake fur, taken from stuffed animals, wrapped around the robotic parts. There was a tiny human girl, a thick data cable running from her temple to the back of the robot. Her hands wrapped around the handles on the back and her feet braced against the back legs of the robot. Mr. Beepy went from fast beeps to steady tone and gave two sharp barks. Ninny bit down on a piece of plastic in her mouth and pressed her little thumbs, one still wet but slobber, onto the butterfly plate on the back of Mr. Beepy. The whole robotic frame shuddered as the robot dog head mounted up on the top began barking wildly, the synthetic tongue lolling out with excitement. The driver of the Lanarkland APC had only a second to realize that he'd been ambushed before Nini hit the trigger. 30mm armor-defeating mass-reactive antimatter shells with battle-steel jackets slammed into the APC, ripping open the entire armored side, blowing through the Lanarkland inside and exploding out the other side as Nini raked the armored vehicle with a long practice maneuver. She let off the trigger as the APC heeled over to the side and landed on one side, flames crackling from the gutted armored vehicle. Nene sighed and leaned forward, resting her head against the back of the weapon. I love you, Mr. Beepy, she whispered, petting the warm side of the heavy weapon mobile assault smock on platform. The dog's head barked happily. Diddy looked out, then ran to Nene, kneeling down next to the little girl who had her eyes closed and was sucking her thumb. Diddy wrinkled her nose at the smell of burnt hair, brushing it away from the data link. The skin around them was red and blistered, and the telltale pin lights inside were all red and amber. Are you okay, Nene? Diddy asked gently, pulling the cable from the side of the girl's head. Mr. Beepy barked and the gun made clacking noises as it went into standby mode. The robotic dog's head took over from the dead smock on circuitry and the gun lifted up on all fours and danced a little jig as the fins extended from the nanoforge slowly lowered as it cooled. I'm okay, Ennis said around her thumb. Her eyes were closed. Sleepy. I know, sweetie, Diddy said. She looked around and carried Nenny back to the ship. She looked at Mimi. You and Cindy keep watch. Mimi sighed and stood up. 
her knee buckling. Fine. Cindy opened a pouch and let out a handful of little fairies splutter out. Diddy carried Ninny into the ship, carrying her to one of the berths. She laid the little girl down, brushing her hair out of her eyes. Mr. Beefy carefully stepped around the debris that the girls hadn't moved out of the way, his robotic legs outriggers whining as the servos kicked in. Diddy took a rag from her pocket, brushing Ninny's hair out of the way. She dabbed at the pink fluid that had run from the girl's ear beneath the data link. Diddy could see that the muscle tremors had already started. Small, tiny spasms of different muscles indicating petite mole seizures. Diddy knew that Ninny would wet the bed. When she was sure that the little girl was fully asleep, she got up, scratching Mr. Peepee's head, and walked out. She moved over to Cindy, who was sitting by the inside of the ship. Where's Mimi? Diddy asked. She went to the bathroom. She's probably already sticked up, Cindy said. Her voice was cold. She probably fudge-packed her panties already. She looked up at Diddy. She's gonna get someone killed, Diddy. Let me worry about your sister, Diddy said. Are you going to be able to convince any of the night fairies to keep watch tonight? Cindy looked sad. I um, think it's gonna be the last thing she'll do. She looked up. Can we bury her? Diddy nodded. Not surprised that the younger girl was asking to bury an animatronic doll after all the death and carnage the real people that she'd seen. Sparkle Bell was an expensive toy, an advanced virtual intelligence that could play games, learn, react to a child, and even keep watch over a child and alert parents to any risks or danger. Like many expensive toys, she required maintenance that could no longer get, which was why she was tired. She laid on the seam of the hull plates on the starship, her legs straight behind her, her iridescent wings moving slowly, one arm under her head, one arm hanging down. Her outfit was tattered and torn, but still sparkle in the moonlight. Sparkle Bell listened to the song of the night above her playing. It was a new song. It repeated itself, but it was still a new song. She closed her eyes, listened to the song, then opened her eyes again. She saw three shapes moving towards the hatch. She squinted, and the blurry shapes rezzed for a moment before turning into three Lanicalan in black armor, carrying weapons, slowly creeping up to the open hatch. Sparkle Bell twitched her nose twice to the sound of the tinkling little bell. Her transmitter spun up, sent the message, and shorted out. The synthetic new flesh on her stomach blackened and split as she closed her eyes. The gazing on her high-capacity battery cracked, and the capacitance gel oozed out. She sighed, smiled, and closed her eyes. Inside the ship, Diddy looked at Cindy, who was nodding. Diddy looked at what was in her hand and sighed. It was her last one, and she'd been shepherding it for weeks. Now she was glad that she'd had it, but part of her was loath to use it. She pulled the pin and waited. Cindy and Amy both watched down the sights of their pistols at the bottom of the airlock hatch. Alanic Lan and Helmet lifted up. Both girls pulled the trigger. Amy's pistol screamed. Cindy's pistol thwacked. The Alanic Lan's head exploded and it all fell out of sight. Diddy threw the implosion grenade out the hatch. Alanic Lan screamed a loud, whinnying noise. The implogren went off with a sucking sound as Amy and Cindy blew on the barrels of their pistols to cool the coils. Cindy dug another night fairy that yawned and stretched and let it fly outside. 
Diddy leaned back, staring out at the darkness. The only light from the ship was on the tail section, burning steadily in the darkness. Give me one, Cindy commanded, pointing at the box in Mimi's lap. No, I'm almost out, Mimi answered. You took the stickies from the medbay. Give me one, Cindy said. No, Mimi said, backing up, putting her hand over her pocket. I need them. I got shot, both girls said at the same time. Nini needs one. She's really bad, Cindy said. I need them, Mimi said. Cindy slowly drew her pistol. Give me one. Mimi shook her head laughing. No, you won't shoot me. I'm your sister. Mimi turned around, walking away. Cindy noticed that she had a brown streak on the back of her pants. Do you remember what happened to Mommy and Daddy? Cindy said. The dead has got them, Mimi said. She pushed up her sleeve, walking towards the comfortable chair. After you shut the door on them, Cindy said softly, they could have gotten inside, but you let Mommy and Daddy and Tiki get eaten. Whatever, Mimi said. You're just a stupid baby. Go someplace and cry over your toys. Cindy leveled her pistol at her sister's back, biting her tongue. Diddy put her hand on the barrel of the pistol, pushing it down. When Cindy looked up, Diddy shook her head. Snarling, Cindy followed Diddy out of the room. Mimi put one sticker in her mouth and jabbed the other inside of her elbow. What does she know? She does a stupid baby who cries over toys, Mimi thought as she took the second one out of her mouth and popped the cap free. The meds were cool as they raised up her arm. How many? Diddy asked, sighing. Thirty, maybe more. They've got another clanky, Cindy said. A big one with a big gun in the front and threads. A tank, Diddy sighed. Stupid lankies. Me and Mr. Beepy will help, Nini said. She started to stand up, lost her balance, and fell to the floor. She made a small noise of frustration and pushed herself up. I can help. Diddy shook her head. Can't even walk, Nini, she said. Cindy looked up at a data pad. They're sneaking through the concourse. Even Mr. Beepy can see them. Nini scrambled on all fours towards the exit. Diddy gave a sharp cry and hurried after her, grabbing one foot and pulling her back. I'll carry you, Diddy said. Stay with me, Nini asked. Diddy nodded, carrying the smaller girl to the open cargo hatch. Mr. Beepy stared underneath the cargo net. The sun was bright outside as Diddy had set Nini down behind the damaged autonomous smart gun. Mr. Beepy's doghead barked happily. I'm sorry, Diddy said, taking a data cable that normally should have been plugged into a console and plugged it into the socket on the side of the little girl's head. It's okay, Nini said. She braced her feet against the rear legs of the acting as outriggers. She wrapped her hands around the handles. Diddy could see the data reflected in the pupils of Nene's working cyber eye. Lanark Land medium tank, 115 tons, 0.75 meters of solid battle steel armor, 9 kilowatt battle screen, 105 millimeter plasma cannon, Nene said, her voice distant and almost confused. Mr. Beepy barked. 30 light infantry, small arms and non-powered armor, Nene said. Diddy knelt down next to the girl and stroked her hair. She could smell scorched hair and frying electronics. A little wisp of blue smoke eked out of the exposed circuitry on the little girl's data link. It's a baby's data link, not an adult's, Diddy thought to herself for the thousandth time since it had all started. The heavy 30mm autocannon started beeping as it went through the function check. Cleared, loaded the chamber, 
and fired up the nanoforge. All clear, Ninny yelled through Mr. Beepy's stock head. She pressed the little thumbs against the trigger. The crew's served weapon roared, putting out a cannon rounds that blew apart the far wall of the concourse. Two small aircars slammed into the tank. The mass reactive anti-shells blew craters in the Lanclan tank's armor, eating through it like a spray of warm water through snow. The tank exploded. Nene began turning the weapon when she gave a gargling cry, her back arcing, her limbs shaking as her feet kicked. She landed on the side, her arms curled, her legs straight out. She rocked slightly side to side. Didi yanked the data cable free and the girl's temple and pulled her aside. Outside, the Lanikalan charged. They hadn't known the ship worked, that there was working ship anywhere on the planet. Like the girls, they wanted to go home. Plasma rounds screamed across the tarmac, crisscrossing as each flight fired. Three magak weapons, two pistols, and a submachine gun fired. A jacked-up cross-wired neural pistol added to the fray. Mr. Beepy parked at the Lanikalan as they maneuvered across the parking lot. The girls getting frustrated as the Lanikalan quickly galloped over and forth to cover. Slowly but surely, the girls' fire lessened as they ran out of ammo. Desperate, Didi picked up the data cable and plugged it into her temple. Anti-theft lockout appeared just like it had. The dog's head was providing the ram and sensors for the smart gun to even operate, refusing to recognize anyone but Nini, who'd gotten it for her birthday that day everything had fallen apart. No, 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 please work, Didi said, pulling the data cable from her head and grabbing the handles. She pressed the trigger. Nothing happened. The Lanikalan started to move forward, fifteen of them marching forward. This is it. There is nowhere left to run, Didi thought. A scream sounded, at first making Didi think of the girls were screaming. She realized it was coming from outside, right before where there was a roar of afterburners. The dropship was heavily armored, its weapons firing. The Lanikalan tried to flee, but the heavy guns on the sides of the dropship cut them down. The dropship settled in place, summoned by the emergency beacon on the tail of the ship. One of the troop doors opened and a figure was standing in the door. Red marked shirt, black pants, crossed straps on the chest and a heavy rifle in the hands. A human figure. Diddy pulled Needy into her arms, holding the smaller girl who was limp but still breathing and rocked her back and forth, weeping with relief as the human ran forward. Captain's personal log, Stardate 8535.215. En route to Starbase 19, my Uruhu picked up a distress beacon from one of the earliest attacked harmonious cluster worlds. On a hunch, I ordered the ship to head to the beacon at warp 8, arriving within 72 hours. Scan showed a group of humans taking cover in a damaged freighter facing off against Atlantic land strike force. I ordered Riker to escort a security away team to rescue the humans and take one of the Jonestown-class dropships with him and clear it for action. Once the Atlantic land were dealt with, my Riker exited the dropship to check on the survivors. The survivors turned out to be a group of 16 adolescent and prepubescent girls in all various stages of health. They were initially leery, but quickly agreed to accompany my Riker back to the Dakota. My Troy had made an excellent suggestion in sending my Riker. His personal charisma was soothing to the girls, all of whom are suffering from extensive deprivation. Once aboard the ship, I had medical teams standing by. I still chose to use dropships on combat shuttles rather than matrons. 
My McCoy immediately took charge, my nurse Chapel assisting him. My McCoy has stated that they are all suffering from malnutrition, PTSD, with one case of heavy painkiller addiction, and another with bad neural scorching from running a modified smart gun via a neural link rather than a computerized control. Talk about last-second rescues. We're currently making for Starbase 9 and should arrive in the next 48 hours. Admiral Jeff Pekak, 8873. Addendum. In our cargo hold is a Mark 38130 mm autonomous octocannon smart gun system attached to a robotic canine companion. Its name is Mr. Beepy. End of chapter. Chapter 353. Two months after Case Omaha. Month three of the battle for Hessler. Baoka de Ust stared at the data on his honor attack. He was staring at the Terrans called the Cygnus Orion Galactic Spur, watching the various stars change color according to the data he had input. It started a silent filter when these people started history a few centuries after the Precursor War and ran until current day at approximately 10,000 years per second slowing down for any major expansion or contraction events. What bothered him the most was the beginning. Over a thousand systems were what the Lanica land started with, every time. The same thousand systems in a wide streak of good distance from the great empty long dark. The Lanica land spread out at the same time as the Manton had a single system. The Lanica land spread out rapidly at first, moving from a thousand worlds to nearly ten thousand in less than fifteen hundred years, the lifespan of three generations of Lanarkland. Although Lanarkland generations were measured every fifty years by its computing software, so within thirty generations the Lanarkland had taken nearly ten thousand worlds. The Mantid had taken ten. The Terrans were nothing more than little primates, most likely lemurs existing in a world full of giant reptiles, it would be another 40 million years until an asteroid strike would end the reign of the superfauna reptilian avians and make room for the lemurs to develop into the primates that everyone knew and loved. The Trianidad were unintelligent insects at the time, multiple warring subspecies fighting for dominance, a few million years before the rise of intelligence. The rest of the systems were marked with icons indicating damage or destruction at the hands of the precursors. The Lanarkalan control area shrank, had empty spaces appear in the control areas. He'd always been unable to find a reason for the shrinkage and the gaps, at least an official reason. It was long enough ago that most historians were not interested in the data. Rejoice struck Baoku de Ust as strange, that an epoch made of irregularity would be ignored by his fellow researchers. His simulation put out the data as it paused flashing icons that there was an irregularity in the data. Again, there were only three reasons for the contraction and the internal systems dropping from Lanark to Lanark control. Rapid spread of a pandemic, internal warfare, agricultural and industrial collapse with material transportation failure. It examined those systems, looking at what records he was privy to. The problem was plain and simple. That a hundred million years meant that even geological records could have been wiped away. However, Bokaduast had added new data to his socio-mathematic formula, by working to understand the Terrans and ensure his system worked in regards to them. 
he had begun to look at his own species in a slightly different light. Terrans knew and admitted at one point that there were genetically unique species of Terrans, called Homo, in their scientific parlance. Apparently, far before recorded history, the different types of Terrans performed genocidal purges. The longest was between the Neanderthals and modern human, a primitive, savage war that went on for quite some time. Bogoduast had to admit that he had not considered some species and parallel evolutionary branches of the same species. None of the species in Lanark land space contained such a thing. But then, the species in Lanark land space had been gentled repeatedly, their history and culture destroyed. So he had built a formula to account for the possible rise of a subspecies. His fellow Lanark land researchers would have undoubtedly told him that he was ridiculous. If there was a distinct subspecies of Lanark land, it would have been recorded that there would be records pertaining to the subspecies somewhere in the vast archives. Volker de West had his doubts. According to his simulations, especially ones that he included the data from the Trinidad and Mantid, the only way for the common planet land to have withstood the Mantid and the mythical lost precursor race is if there had been a subspecies. It also had a bizarre symmetry to it. The Lanarkland had much in common with both the Mandan and the Trianidad. Hexapod creatures made in somewhat the same method if you ignored that one was a mammal and the other two were insects. Bokutuas looked at his visitors, several Terran officers, including a digital sentient day. As you can see, my social mathematical model has severe deficiencies using my previous available data, logic, and intellectual theories as well as current land belief. Bokuduist said. Everyone present nodded. Bokuduist started the simulation again, this time with evolutionary data that he'd gleaned from working with the Terrans. He had included castes into the system. A leader caste, a warrior caste. Evolutionary pressures would ensure that they would be larger than the other Lanark clan, and because of such, would undoubtedly consume more resources meaning that they would be far fewer in number than the rank-and-file Lanark Lan. This time, when the contraction Mist Planet started, his simulation put up signals. Each system that went black was centrally located to the others, each of them having a sphere of control that slightly overlapped, but included roughly 25 systems each. There, Bokutuast said, a period of steady expansion, each radiating out from central hubs, it is analogous to how the mantid spread out. And has parallels to the filter of too many hives that plagued my people, the rusted mantid said. A greeny looked up, flashed rapid icons. This software is solid, 7.4.a stated, his voice synthesized. Thank you, Professor, Pokedoest said. He knew many of his colleagues would have taken offense that another was examining his software data but he knew that the Professor 7.4.A was a professor of advanced mathematical theory as well as cutting-edge software design. Now the fall, Bogotwist stated. The elimination of control by the central hubs, loss of system control. Everyone watched patiently. This time the simulation did not stop, but rather continued on. Here I have added the data from the defector researchers regarding when the Lanark land met each species and began the process of revolving gentling, Bogotwist stated. Before this, it was just assumed that they took millions of years to recover due to the Brigos War. Yeah, 
the russet mantid said. Food species? She sounded somewhat embarrassed. Indeed. My people escaped the precursors by hiding within the remains of your people's larder. Bokaduist said, the dry joke bringing several uncomfortable chuckles. Now, if you look here, the Talcan people are, at this time, little more than a trinary six creatures roughly analogous to the Terran weasel or meerkat, Bogaduist said. He held up his hand towards the sole Talcan present. No offense. Oh, none taken. It's fascinating. I've always wondered what kind of evolutionary pressure led my people to developing a three-sex system. The female Talcan, Ursalmaak, stated, her voice mild. As soon as you requested the data, System Director Brentelek sent me here post-haste. Salmanaak knew the Bokaduist was a researcher and an academic, which meant that some of the political niceties would be ignored, and the blunt, ugly truth would be put right out in the open. It was part of working with academics. A wise decision, Bokaduist said. Your willingness to allow me access to your people's cultural and evolutionary data that the Terrans possess was part of the critical in some of my decisions. Day simply smiled, leaning back in the chair, sipping at a glass of wine. The simulation kept running, speeding up as if there was no critical data to pause over. Just the Lanik-Lan absorbing system after system after system. Some showed an icon of other species present on the worlds, but little else. During this time, my people were expanding their hold on the worlds at the base of the galactic hub, Mokaduist stated. It's rather boring after this, just the great herd expanding its influence with nothing to stop it. Day made a hemming noise, sipping at a wine. It does not help that the majority of the data of this time is either lost or glossed over, Mokaduist sighed. This is all the reconstruction, mind you, based on data that you were able to provide me. He turned and pointed at the second holotable that was running the same one, only with huge gaps in the data. That one is performing the reconstruction based only on what my data my people have publicly available, he said. He pointed at the third holotable. That table has only the data that my people allow researchers access to. He then pointed at a fourth and final holotank. That one is running the data as provided by the defectors. And the data recently delivered to you that was acquired before our diplomatic corps left the Unified Council? They asked. Still compiling for separate analysis, but included with the primary simulation, Mokaduist stated. It took nearly an hour for the entire simulation to play through. When it was over, it showed Lanark land space as a Terran Confederacy protectorate. The core systems of the Confederate member races were all dark with the exception of the Rigel system. The systems of the Long Dark were under Confederate control according to the simulation. The simulation beeped and came to an end. That's promising, General Morocrook, the Rigelian, stated slowly. It's also an error, Bokaduist stated. Everyone turned and brown. What makes you say that? The Russet Mantid, path to understanding, asked, grounding. Mokaduas tapped the simulation, bringing up a list of species variables. Because it just told me that it is an error. The error catching system has reported that there are specific errors, Mokaduas said. In macro, there is an error. Icon splashed. I see no errors, 7.4.8 stated. Check the warning files, not the error files, Mokaduas stated. 
My apologies. I stated error when I should have said that the system recognized an event that is strong enough to cause a cascading error in the simulation. It requires my, our, input. What is the event? General Morocock asked. Bokadoos shifted the holotank's view, zooming over the one particular system. It burned a bright red. This is Hessler. Three months ago, Bokadoos stated, an analysis of media and Galnet traffic from that system, as well as other factors, is resulting in my social mathematics warning of a significant event occurring in the system three months ago, he stated. Red Ripple slowly moved out from Hessler. Is that an estimation of the effects of the unknown event? Path of Understanding asked. Boke Duess shook his head. No, the ripples represent Galdet posts discussing what has been termed Red Stack, regarding the LEDs in the back of Terran descent human necks. A set of blue ripples appeared. What is that? One of the visiting academics, Volks Hamak, asked. That is a slowly advancing wave of quark interaction disturbance. Bokadwiss said. As you can see, my simulation is not in error. He turned and looked at his guests. An event with a high probability of spreading influence has occurred on the disputed planet of Esla. What kind of event would you guess? General Morcock asked. I do not guess, my general, Bokadwiss said, steepling his fingers and all four hands. Then what kind of event is it? General asked. We, including the precursor autonomous war machines, are all under attack by an enemy capable of temporal and fourth dimensional manipulation, Mokaduist stated. He also pointed at the leading edge of the Confederacy. There are also signs here of increased aggression, specifically the type that points to the latter days of the human-mantled interstellar war, Mokaduist stated. He turned and looked everyone again. The third precursor race has returned in Hestler, and a powerful Hive Queen approaches Terran space. End of chapter. Chapter 354. The Sharkonon people had prepared for this moment for decades. Ever since they developed low-power radio receivers, they were able to hear the signals from space. Dozens of different sources, all putting out obviously artificial signals. They devoted much of their science to decoding those signals, working on developing technology to decrypt the signals, to capture the signals, to clean them up and orient upon them better. What they saw enthralled them. A civilization of fragile-looking creatures. Four legs, four arms, obviously from a light-gravity world that had somehow spread to become a dominant life-form in the region. They ruled over dozens, possibly hundreds of planets, the Sharkonon people had been careful with their own signals. Whether other species developed radio and broadcast willy-nilly, they laid copper wires everywhere, then fiber optic cable, and eventually developed quark communications for security. The Sharkonon people were mammals with a heavy bone structure, thick muscle, a layer of kinetic absorbing fat, and an excellent mental acuity. They approached science like all other things, once they tamed their planet by putting their species' resources towards whatever was necessary, they spread out quietly, slowly, burst in long sleep ships, using technology to increase and adapt their natural hibernation into something that could last for decades. That allowed them to settle their first few planets. Then they began expanding by establishing more colonies. 
They kept their eyes on the region of space populated by the weird creatures that seemed to rule over many slave races. The Shakunan also began researching weapons, screens, and other technology. While they didn't start with any, nor were they able to acquire any technology from the radio signals of the nearby species, radio signals that they had correctly identified as a trap to find weak species to conquer, they were able to know that the battle screens and jump drives were possible, and that alone meant that they should research them. They discovered jump drives first, they learned to hide the emissions first, and then the signals put out by jump drive in use. Then, the measurable energy flare of entering and leaving jump space. They knew that should that species discover any signals of the Sharkonon, then they would arrive with warships to conquer the Sharkonon. Armor, weapons, and screens, all of them were researched quietly. Hellspace was discovered and researched and then abandoned. The Sharkonon were a careful, patient people. Still, they were conquerors at heart. They wanted the strange species' worlds, not just because they were there, but they desired to take away the slaves, desired to take over the worlds as intact as possible, take over their manufacturing base. Many of their top leaders desired to enslave the four-armed, four-legged tendril gelled species and make them act as slaves to other species the Sharknon had seen in the video signals. Finally, their industrial base and population had reached the projected markers. The Sharkonon people quietly rejoiced. They would invade the creature's territory and subjugate them, thereby ensuring that the Sharkonon people would not be subjugated first. They would free the slave species, arm them, and put them in charge. They built their fleet, tens of thousands of warships, with hundreds of thousands of support ships. Power armor and robot combat armor was created and manufactured. Four times the entire military had to be completely retooled, once when a new higher bands of jump space were found, another when NTV cannons was improved, another time when the fusion power was able to be miniaturized even further, and the last time when a new type of armor was developed. But in the end, their 500-year project was complete. The fleet trained for nearly five years at the peak of their performance. Well, slightly on the downward trend, the crews all went into hypersteep, and the fleet made for enemy space. Lord Commander Gronka watched as the screen as the countdown quickly moved down to zero. The fleet would exit jump space in the ore cloud on the target system, scan the system, and then move in, quickly grabbing control of the system by dominating the high orbitals and landing ground troops to surround the cities. It needed to be quick. The plan was to seize control of the system, lock it down, then jump out to the spokes and begin subduing those systems. Gronka knew that once the attack began, they needed to keep up momentum. The fleet slipped from the extremely high jump bands down through the layers of jump space and then exited into real space. The Sharkonon had devised stealth systems that could operate in jump space. 50,000 warships, from giant leviathans to light frigates, all drifted silently in the ore cloud around the star. Bring up, scanners! Let us see what order we must attack, Lord Commander Gronka stated. The screen flickered and cleared as the sensors did their work and dutifully reported what the status of the system was. Come to 095, go rapid fire on C-plus cannons, Admiral Sonella ordered. The 50 Harvester class were maneuvering, trying to cover one another as they released subordinate machines. 
task was done to work shifted fire. The precursor harvesters reeled. Plumes of vaporized metal exploded out into space. The precursors answered with their own bodies. Space twisted and screamed as the 80 ships of the Terran Confederate Space Force, backed by the remaining 600 ships of the Great Hurt Navy, went toe-to-toe with five groups of precursor harvesters. Come, Great Most High Deathmu, tell him that it's all over but the crying. Any mistake, and we can still lose this, but we've got them on the ropes, Admiral Sonella said. Lord Commander Garonka stared at what was happening. The strangely formed ships looked nothing like the ships that they'd seen through the powerful telescopes, were firing weapons of such strength that it caused gravity ripples through space. Helm, he snapped. Aye, aye, sir. Order the fleet to remain inside and running. Begin astrogation to return over, he said. He turned away from the screen. Let our people leave this madness, he said. He folded his clawed hands over one another. Let us return home. Admiral Sinella looked up from her sensor tech. Any idea what those signals in the ore cloud were? Her scanner tech shook his head. No, ma'am. They watched for roughly an hour and then made stealth translation into hyperspace. I guess they weren't interested in our fight, the Admiral said. End of chapter. Chapter 355. General Nadrock looked down at the holotanks below him. He was standing at the observer's area, in front of the seats, leaning against the railing and smoking a cigarette. He could see all the holotanks from up here, watch the ebb and flow of battle. Next to him stood his aide, Colonel Bichon, and one of the great grand most highs of the system, formerly in charge of the infantry, now in charge of precisely Jack and Shet, but wounded troops that had barely survived. On Nodrak's other side was the Most High Ge'erimau, aide to the Great Most High Aromaru, who still commanded nearly 10,000 tanks, and General Mafeta, who was in charge of the Terran close air support assets. Most High Aromaru's men were pushing deeper into the three cities, paving the way for the Third Armor to engage the precursor forces inside the city that were surrounding the massive ships that had landed or crashed in the city centers. 18th Armor Division was currently sweeping the graveyard, where dozens of precursor machines had crashed. It was a radioactive housecape full of twisted metal, destroyed or heavily damaged precursor combat vehicles, and shattered landscape. All 12 infantry divisions, unpowered, were sweeping the cities, fighting next to the armored vehicles. The power armor troops were mixed in with the cities as well as working with the air cab units to sweep the countryside looking for any precursors that might have avoided the net so far. There wasn't to say the combat was over. Space Force had only recently finished off the last Harvester-class precursors and most of the lesser machines, but some were still out there playing hide-and-seek with Space Force. It was odd, Nodok thought to himself. These ones didn't hell jump out. They kept fighting as if they could pull victory from defeat from an enemy that outgunned them, outranged them, and that they could barely affect with a massive fire. Space Force was holding roughly a third of their ships in reserve, suspecting another wave come in. It was all down to the ground forces now. Truckers engaging, Geremu stated. The fact that humans often dispensed with titles when talking about one another seemed odd. Of course he is, Nodrak said tapping the ashes into the ashtray. 
He brought up a virtual keyboard with a command to his implant and tapped a few keys with one blade arm, taking a long drag of his Terran import smirk. Sir, the summoned image of the Syrian compact cabal with red scales and a flash of the staff sergeant on his collar. What's the bandwidth looking like for Trucker's Battle Tactical Network updates? Nadrak asked. The tech looked down, then back up. Minor updates to the battle plan, fairly low so far, he said. Let me know once he's crossed into Bolo Badwood's territory, Nodrak said, and closed the channel. So he doesn't give orders verbally, Gaerimau asked. Nodrak shook his head. No, he uses his implant to make war plan addendums and adjustments. He reserves his voice commands for urgent things. And has he ever lost a battle? Gaerimau watched as the lead ranks of the forward section of the western flank of the third armor started flashing yellow to signify that they were engaged in combat. His last a few, Mephetta said, holding her arms and leaning on the railing. Most expensive victories the enemy ever bought, though. She shook her head. One more, the enemy threw so much metal at Trucker that when they finally forced Trucker's one regiment to retreat, they realized they lost nearly 60% of their military forces, and Trucker's unit was already reloading and getting ready for a counter-thrust. The war was over right there. Nudrak said. Gaerimau watched the third armor seem to move like a well-oiled machine. He had to admit, with 200 years' experience as a tank commander, he understood the holotanks and what was going on. It just frightened him. First Alcan is falling back with a great herd armor, one of the tanks reported from the ground. All Smokey now opened up a window with air in front of him, looking over the numbers. Looks like the most that first Alcan took was some moderate armor damage. General Nadruk mused. He opened a few other windows. A armorer whose tanks are a little beat up, but nothing that can't be handled in the field. He checked another window. Looks like 15 combat sustainment is meeting them. He leaned forward. Hmm, interesting. Their battalion commander requested it directly after making sure that the CO for first target is going to be there. Problems? Bajump asked. Not sure. Have someone keep an eye on the mimetic traffic. That's usually a good indicator of crap going sideways on a person-to-person level, Nudrak said. Great Grand Most High of the Great Herd Infantry, Gulwapapin, had largely been silent, listening to the others. Why, General Nudrak, do you give such autonomy to your commanders? He asked, frowning. They are on the battlefield. I am here. My data is seconds behind actual events. Not as bad as it was in eras long past, but still. As little as half a second can make the difference between defeat and victory. Between living and dead, Nadrak said. But you allow General Trucker to command units he cannot even see. Gaawalapin said. See, right over there, he ordered the Bolo Vegetellers to go to rapid fire on their infinite repeaters 9 through 17 at a specific aiming points in 8 seconds. The Lanarktalan said, Let's take a look, Nodrak said. He activated the raiding holo system and brought up Bola Vegetalis's optical sensors. The battle was roaring. Hordes of precursor light infantry and light armored vehicles were charging the massive supertank. The huge supertank wasn't even using its main gun, just using infinite repeaters, mortars, point of fence, and anti-personnel chargers to destroy the mechanical attackers. There is nothing that... Gaalwalpin started to say. A horde of fast-attack hoverpods lunged up from behind a pile of ferrocrete rubble. The launchers deployed, 
obviously getting ready to launch multiple armor-defeating missiles at the massive tank. The infinite repeaters shredded them before they could get much more than a meter over the rubble. That is preposterous, Galavapin said, coning his tendrils and shaking his jowls in outrage. How could you possibly expect me to believe that a sole tank commander, any a hundred miles away, would know what's going to happen? General Nudruk gave the Trinidad equivalent of a smile and made a motion, wiping the display and bringing up the map. Let's take a look at it. He made another motion. 108th Military Intelligence, Tank Specialist Hannah. How can I help you, sir, ma'am, both or neither? The Terran female that appeared asked. This is General Nodruk, Theater Commanding. Put me through to Combat Analysis Division, Trucker Sequencing Section. Nodruk said. Right away, sir, the Terran said. There was silence in the line for a moment. Hold for Sergeant Kukruk. Ka'er Ma'u restrained a smile. He knew that his rival was about to get completely embarrassed. 108th Combat Division, Real-Time Operational Analysis, Trucker Section, a furry-looking Terran said. General Nodrakia, the big Trianidad said. General, how can I help you? Keep in mind that we're extremely busy, the Terran said. Ka'alwalpin felt a little offended that the Terran seemed to be implying that he had better things to do than talk with someone who outranked him by such a factor. Have you determined how Trucker knew that the anti-armor pods were going to engage the Bolo Vegetalis? Nadruk asked. One second, sir, the Terrence said. He muted, turning away. After a minute, he looked back, then down, obviously doing something on screen that they couldn't see. All right, sir, four hours ago a Jin-class precursor vessel was shot down by a combination of orbital strikes and Bolo Vegetalis' main gunfire. It deployed its full complement while under orbital fire and disabled it. 3rd Regiment, 2nd Talker Marine Division encountered pod drones and two dozen heavy pod layers three miles from where Vegetalis was operating. He took another look. The Talker Marines disabled the precursor combat robots that didn't withdraw but could not follow up their assault. They reported and moved on, catching up with the Great High R. Armourou's armored units. Two hours ago, 22nd Infantry Division elements encountered a heavy pod layer mech company had destroyed it although it appears that they only discovered half of the pod layers that the Talca Marines reported as escaped. The known speed of those drones while cruising under stealth is only two miles an hour. As you can see, the ferrocrete used in the ground car elevated highway system there is the same sensor signature as the drones and prevents a direct line of sight. The Terran male shrugged. Once you look at the data, it's fairly obvious that the anti-tank drone sent by the Jin before its destruction via orbital fire would be heading towards Bola Vegetalis. It was just putting the evidence together. Thank you, Sergeant, Nadrak said and closed the window. He looked at Galwalpin and put out his cigarette. Does that satisfy you? Emu knew that the other Lanikdalan couldn't see it, but Emu could. Some subconscious part of the Terran General's brain had put all the data together, analyzed the pattern, and come to the logical and straightforward conclusion. Gemu was impressed that the Terran military had dedicated an entire section to analyze one man's battlefield impressions. It made sense to Gemu, as it allowed them to refine combat predictive algorithms, as well as train other leaders in how to put together circumstantial evidence into a coherent whole. That, if he's making these deductions, surely it affects his ability to lead, as well as to take part in combat. Galwalpin harumphed. How can he be an effective leader or combat soldier if he spends all this time analyzing data? Nodruk slowly pulled out his half-empty pack of cigarettes, tapping the top end and against his blade arm. Wanna see? Galwalpin frowned. See what? 
See Trucker in action and see if you want to revise that statement, Mufat said. I would like to see, Garamu'u said. Nudruk made a few poking motions with a blade arm. Behold, the magic of cybernetic, tank sensors, and software. The window opened up and expanded around everyone, visible only to those who stood on the balcony. Trucker was half out of his tank, his helmet on his head, both hands wrapped around the firing handles on the quad-barreled TC guns. He was raking the fire across the side of a precursor that was trying to pull itself out of the rubble of a collapsing building. Black Bertie, rotate up new port battle screen projectors. You're about to take a hit, he yelled. A data screen popped up that he had ordered at nearly 30 seconds prior. Ten seconds before, or even that, he had warned the defense crewmen on the tank that they were going to take a 15 kiloton hit to the port battle screens. There was a flare of white light behind Trucker as he let off the trigger, whipped the gun up and down to the left, and spit tobacco juice off to the side. He started raking the upper floors of the building, and the bright purple flash of precursor battle screens taking hits started erupting from out of the shot windows. Bag of bolts, recycle your Apis strip. I can see the crack in it from here. You know not to wet print new Apis strips, he shouted, raking the building again. A tank fired, hitting where Trucker was lashing the building, the heavy main gun of the tank blowing the roof off the building in a shower of debris and clawing rising cloud of fire and smoke. A precursor shot out the building, lighting its grav drive, but the main gun shot from another direction, blew it into confetti, before Rick could get further than a hundred meters from the building and twenty meters of altitude. Letting off the triggers, Trucker spit tobacco and looked around, stomping a foot on the pedal to rotate his command platform in a quick 360, checking the data on his implants against where he could feel the battle was going. Something's off, he thought to himself, keeping his barrels rotating so that they could cool faster. He did a quick check with the HHC, did a quick check on the cry little sister, then ran another fast status on the division. Nothing. He held two fingers against his data link, checked the updates to the battlefield tactical network system, then frowned. Something still felt out of whack. A precursor machine lunged out of a half-collapsed store, scattering trivids and chairs everywhere, and ran straight into the main gun shot by Raspberry Pi. The precursor slid to the side, the entire side caved in and fire licking at the internals, all regiments, status reports, Trucker snapped, sending the data link ping to go with it. The reports came in rapidly. Eight tanks disabled due to blown tracks. One tank had taken an engine hit, and another was currently working its way out of the rubble after an underground parking garage had collapsed and dumped it into a... Uh, hole. He held on to that for a moment, and the tank rocked slightly, as if it crushed several twisting and burning ground cars under its bulk. For a split second, he could see the iridescent insect floating on the breeze just outside the battle screens. His cyber optics focusing on it for a second before returning his field of view to the horizon. It suddenly jowled and he double-checked the deployment map. Nice try, he thought. Carmine, get me Colonel Derismal right now, he yelled out, looking around again. It took a couple tries, but the PFC Carmine managed to get through to Colonel Dresmal, 14th Regiment, 3rd Brigade, and passed the link to Trucker. Dremsel here, sir, Trucker heard. Move your units to the attached location. Ping me when you get there, Trucker snapped, adding his gunfire to another two quad barrels that were ripping apart the armor on the side of a medium precursor vehicle. Roger that, sir, Dresmal answered. 
But do you think he sees? There's nothing there, Jer Aramu asked, watching the holotank. tank. Archer, check the planetary defense and civil defense, Notrak said. Dremsel checked the orders again. He'd served the third armor for over 150 years and was well used to strange orders coming in that made sense after the fact. Get the tanks in closer. Shut down your screens except for the starboard, overhead, and undercarriage, he shouted over the comlink. Nose to tail, nose to tail, and main guns to starboard. Thunder punch! His tank moved forward slightly, bumping into the one ahead with a barely felt bump. His exo flashed him an angry icon as the paint cracked and choked. The CO for the 2nd Battalion bumped his tank, and the starboard battle screens crashed for a moment before they got in the same harmonic. Remsel looked to port where there was nothing but rubble of a parking garage that had collapsed some time earlier, then back to the starboard, where there was nothing but wreckage from multiple skyscrapers that had collapsed and destroyed the precursor heavy vessels. Get ready, Thunder Punch! Trucker yelled over the comlink to Dremsel. Colonel Dremsel could hear that the HHG 3rd Armor's main guns were firing. To be honest, Dremsel didn't like making his tanks a fixed fighting position. It gave away the speed and battlefield maneuverability. But he trusted his CO. He checked the quad barrel and swung it around, lining it up on top of the rubble of the collapsed skyscraper. Any minute now, he thought. Old Iron Feathers led his men on a close-in pass checking the battlefield again. Great Herd Armor and First Talcon had gotten involved in heavy fighting, and while there were no MIA from the battle, it never hurt to do more than one sweep. Iron, do you read me? Trucker's voice popped into his suit. Hand feathers here, Trucker, the Neo-Sapien replied. Got three heavy dropships coming down from the Blessing, but I'm not sure if they're going to get it there in time. I need your men at these coordinates as fast as possible, Trucker said. Old Iron Feathers could hear the sounds of combat and knew that the big tanker was engaged. The coordinates pinged in, only four miles off, but the arc that Trucker wanted him to take increased it to six. En route, 13th in vac out, Iron Feathers said. He opened the channel to his men at the same time as he cross-loaded the flight plan. Drop nap of earth and go full afterburners, Trucker's got something. All nine of his men flashed green icons as he led them on a spiral down to just above the ground lower than twenty meters, and leveled out. Once his men were in a wedge, he kicked off the afterburners, and the SAR armor boosted to over two hundred miles per hour. Look at that. He's calling in a medevac and a medical dropships now. Buchamp mused. What's going on? I'm not sure, Nodrak said. He frowned. Sir, Daisy Sue is confirming an orbital strike request, what the attack said, her head and shoulders suddenly appearing from the hollow projector. Whose request? Nadruk asked. Gerimau knew. General Trucker, he wants 450 kinetic shot from near orbit less than a mile from 14th Armour Regiment, the female Terran said. Gerimau could see that her heavy-duty data link implant had all nine LEDs red. His had three LEDs. Authorize it, Nadruk said. Get me a satellite overview of what's going on with the 14th Regiment. Yes, sir, the Terran said and vanished. Dremsel saw nine members of the 13th EVAC touchdown right before the countdown to the orbital strike reached zero. He had his hands wrapped around the handles of the quad barrel so tight his knuckles and fingers were starting to hurt. The lance came down and struck the ground with a blinding white light. The ground heaved and surged, the tanks clanking and rubbing against one another, the battle screens losing attunement for a second and snarling where they joined. 
The blast wave carried dust, dirt, and debris in a solid wave out to smash against the battle screens, to flow over the tanks, and barely miss the SAR armor crouched down in the rubble, before hitting the ground and rushing out nearly two miles more. Open fire! Dremsel yelled, even though he could barely hear and couldn't see. Right before the first tank fire, there was another roaring as a dozen precursor machines, massing several thousand tons each, reached the surface. The laser drills on the front still flashed and burned with a red light. Underground, several exploded, damaged too much to continue by orbital shot. The heavy tank rounds started slamming into the heavy-duty precursor vessels, owing huge chunks in the armor that not only served to protect the robotic harvesters deep in the crust, Smaller machines started deploying from the massive drill and extraction robots, jumping to the ground and charging towards sporting the armor. Behind the tanks, the ground shuddered as heavy hydraulics began lifting massive slabs of endosteel up in the air. Iron feathers looked into the gap and saw hundreds of civilians, their faces gray with dust. Looking up, he looked up with them, pinging his data link. ETA 215 seconds. Crap! Ironfeather's thought. Buxton jumped off the back of the Lanctalan hover tank, trying to not think of how, not too long ago, Binge, just like the crew, had mocked and belittled him as he worked menial labor. The tank commander waved to him and he waved back as he hustled over to where his data link told him that Sergeant Casey was waiting for him. The one-eyed human was standing in his loading frame, looking at where two sets of 40mm grenades were coming out of the two different nanoforgers. There you are, Lieutenant, Casey said. You said you wanted to see me when we got you, Buxton said, moving up. He looked at the grenades on the conveyor belt and frowned. There was standard 40mm high-explosive dual-purpose armor defeating. Yep, solved your problem, the human said. Which problem? Buxton asked. The human pointed at Buxton's left shoulder. Your grenade launcher. Buxton turned and looked at him. Space Force and Armored Engineering say the launch is fine, even though it keeps jamming. It is fine. Your problem isn't the launcher, the big human said. He pointed at the grenades. These are, he pointed at the second one, which Wookston could tell by the slight glossy sheen until the casing had been wet printed by a hot nanoforge. Well, those are to be exact. How? Wookston asked. He couldn't see any difference. The big human picked up one from each conveyor. Superficially, they look the same. Unfortunately, they aren't. I checked the armor logs. You guys wet print once you get into combat. By a fifth or a sixth wet print shell, you get jammed up. Buxton nodded. It's because when wet printed, the booster charge that launches it from the launcher is more granular, sticky, so to speak. You end up with what looks like carbon, but it is carbon and unexploded composition of Delta-7, a low explosive. The human said, it is not much, but enough to jam the weapon as it loads. When you get it clear, it is good five or six launches, then it jams again. Buxton nodded slowly. All right, what do I do about it? I talked to Ordnance Command in the fleet. They gave me permission to run a reorder on your ammo. Instead of caseless using COMT-7, we'll use COMP-X4. It burns cleaner, even when wet printed. That should solve your jamming pro- Casey's eyes opened wide as he grabbed Vuxton, yanking him down to the ground, as the big human went one knee down, first into the ground, covering his face with the other arm. The dust blew by, the wind knocking the grenades off the conveyor belt, 
The shockwave shook the ground as the rumble went through for a long second. You okay, Lieutenant? Casey asked, looking at Fuxton. Yeah. What was that? Fuxton asked, getting up. Orbital strike. Someone just got pancaked, he even said. Fuxton turned and stared. The mushroom cloud, and any sufficiently powered explosion creates a mushroom cloud, was reaching up to the sky. Casey stood up slowly, straightening up. You better have your men load those templates, sir, he said. He pointed at the cloud. I got a feeling you're gonna be back in real soon. Buxton nodded. Status report, a armorer snapped, standing up in the tank. His upper body outside the copula. He could see that the Talcon officer, Buxton, running back over to the tanks, waving his arms to encourage his men to follow. Orbital strike from the Daisy Sioux, sir, his comma tech yelled. We've got multiple heavy precursors coming straight at the 14th Armor Regiment. Looks like a subterranean extraction and refinery system that got forced to the surface by an orbiter strike. Who's close enough to provide support? A armoru asked, staring in awe at the mushroom cloud that was still red and orange. There was silence for a moment. Nobody, most high. A armoru looked around. His tanks were being reloaded. Some of them were damaged badly enough that they were smoking. Rolling coal went through his mind. He tapped his data link, bringing up a map. He was six miles away, a river between. The Terran tanks were all tracked vehicles. They couldn't cross the quarter-of-mile river. These harbor tanks could. He opened up a channel. All the units, all the units, two minutes, then we roll out. We lock and load, rack and stack on the way. Most high, my main gun's out, one of the subordinates protested. Then run them over, a armorer who yelled. This is not optional. I'll shoot anyone who disobeys. Fifteenth, grab your forges, mount the tanks, we'll dismount in the river. Captain Stoppin yelled out. First Talcon, mount your tanks, the human commander of the Talcon Marines yelled. Blood us a course, a armorer ordered. But sir, the Terrans should be able to handle it, his third most high protested. Not by the time we get there, a armorer said. He didn't know how he knew, but he knew. Nodrak watched the screen update and turned to look at the chump. He reached out and poked General Trucker's image with one blade on, even as he exhaled the smoke from his lungs. Not a psyker, my great big bug ass, Nudruk said. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed, and if you do, please consider supporting the author, even by popping over and leaving a thumbs up or a nice comment just to show your appreciation for the story. However, if you wish to support this channel, there are links down below which will help immensely. I will see you all in the next one. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic day. Cheers.